This show was first broadcast on Free FM, Hamilton, New Zealand's community access media organisation. For more information on our lineup of shows and the role we play in the media, visit freefm.org.nz. This show is brought to you by the Buddhist Youth Association every Sunday, bringing Buddhism to the community of the Waikato. We also give away a range of free English or Chinese Buddhism books, MP3 or tapes on Buddhism. If you'd like one, please send a letter with $3 worth of stamps in an envelope to P.O. Box 82146, Highland Park, Howick, Auckland. Or you can phone 092713377. Buddhist Youth Association. Respectful, beneficial, empowering. Hello and welcome to the program. I'm sure if you're a follower of Tibetan Buddhism, and especially the Gelugpa school, you'll know this text well, or at least you'll have heard of it. But here it is in its entirety once again, so we know what we're talking about. It goes like this. I bow down to the Venerable Spiritual Masters. I will explain, as well as I am able, the essence of all the teachings of the conqueror, the path praised by the conquerors and their spiritual children, the entrance for the fortunate ones who desire liberation. Listen with clear minds, you fortunate ones, who direct your minds to the path pleasing to the Buddha and strive to make good use of leisure and opportunity without being attached to the joys of cyclic existence. For you embodied beings, bound by the craving for existence, without the pure determination to be free from the ocean of existence, there is no way for you to pacify the attractions to its pleasurable effects. Thus, from the outset, seek to generate the determination to be free. By contemplating the leisure and endowments so difficult to find and the fleeting nature of your life, reverse the clinging to this life. By repeatedly contemplating the infallible effects of karma and the miseries of cyclic existence, reverse the clinging to future lives. By contemplating in this way, do not generate even for an instant the wish for the pleasures of cyclic existence. When you have, day and night unceasingly, the mind aspiring for liberation, then you have generated the determination to be free. However, if your determination to be free is not sustained by the pure altruistic intention, it does not become the cause for the perfect bliss of unsurpassed enlightenment. Therefore, the intelligent generate the supreme thought of enlightenment. Swept by the current of the four powerful rivers, tired by the strong bonds of karma which are so hard to undo, caught in the iron net of self-grasping egoism, completely enveloped by the darkness of ignorance, born and reborn in boundless cyclic existence, unceasingly tormented by the three miseries, by thinking of all mother sentient beings in this condition, generate the supreme altruistic aspiration. Even if you meditate upon the determination to be free and the altruistic intention, without the wisdom realizing the final nature how things actually exist, you cannot cut the root of cyclic existence. Therefore, strive for the means to realize dependent arising. One who sees the infallible cause and effect of all phenomena in cyclic existence and beyond and destroys all false perceptions of their inherent existence has entered the path which pleases the Buddha. Appearances are infallible dependent arisings. Emptiness is free of assertions of inherent existence or non-existence. As long as these two understandings are seen as separate, one has not yet realized the intent of the Buddha. When these two realizations are simultaneous and concurrent, 
From the mere sight of infallible dependent arising comes definite knowledge, which completely destroys all modes of mental grasping. At that time, the analysis of the profound view is complete. In addition, appearances clear away the extreme of inherent existence. Emptiness clears away the extreme of non-existence. When you understand the arising of cause and effect from the viewpoint of emptiness, you are not captivated by either of their extreme views. In this way, when you have realized the exact points of the three principal aspects of the path, by depending on solitude, generate the power of joyous effort and quickly accomplish the final goal, my child. And that's the text. Well, why exactly are you listening to the program today? Why am I sitting here broadcasting it? You may think these are essentially trivial questions, but actually they're the most important questions we can ask ourselves. Why do we do what we do? The reason such questions are so important is, of course, because the answer determines whether the action has a positive outcome or not. If the intention is positive, that means beneficial to oneself and others, the result will be happiness. If the intention is negative, it harms oneself and others, the outcome will be suffering. So, for instance, listening to the program today, we should make our intention as clear and as positive as we can. And that leads to bodhicitta, the intention to attain enlightenment, not only for oneself, but for the benefit of all beings, in whatever way we can help them. According to the Mahayana school of Buddhism, this is the greatest intention we can have for any action, and it contributes enormous amounts of positive potential to a mind moving towards enlightenment. So let's set that as our motivation. But if that's not possible for you at this stage, don't worry. Just use the program for your own quest for enlightenment. Thank you. Now back to the text. Over the weeks previous to our last program, we had covered renunciation and bodhicitta, the first two principal aspects of the path to enlightenment, and had come to the final aspect, the wisdom realizing the nature of reality. This final aspect is really what all the Buddhist teachings point to, and is introduced in the text with the following verses. Even if you meditate upon the determination to be free and the altruistic intention, without the wisdom realizing the final nature how things actually exist, you cannot cut the root of cyclic existence. Therefore strive for the means to realize dependent arising. One who sees the infallible cause and effect of all phenomena in cyclic existence and beyond, and destroys all false perceptions of their inherent existence, has entered the path which pleases the Buddha. Now, as we discussed last time, the wisdom realizing the final nature of how things actually exist refers to the fact that nothing exists independently with its own inherent nature. Everything depends on other things for its existence, and when we analyze deeply, we cannot find any independent existence anywhere. It is empty of such an existence. That is why Lama Tsongkhapa urges us to put effort into realizing dependent arising. Dependent arising means that things come into being only in dependence on other things and in turn become part of the formation of other things. A cup of tea only becomes a cup of tea when water is added to dried and crumbled leaves in a container we agree to label cup. We then agree to call the concoction in the container a cup of tea. But can tea exist without leaves and water? Could the leaves exist without the sun, the rain, the earth, the air, insects, 
the people who planted and harvest the tea plants and a host of other contributing factors. And what happens when the tea goes down your throat? When is it no longer tea, but a part of your body? In his book, The Heart of Understanding, Thich Nhat Hanh takes dependent arising a step further. He says that actually nothing can be born and nothing can die. We only think things are born and will die when we freeze them into independent entities. For instance, it's a bit of a famous Tibetan argument that the sprout is not in the seed before the seed actually becomes a sprout. But Thich Nhat Hanh sees it differently. He looks back and sees a very complex interrelation that means the sprout is already there in the seed and you exist before you are conceived. He writes that in China and Vietnam, and also in Tibet, you are considered one year old when you are born because you've spent nine months in your mother's womb. For him, you're not born on your birthday. He says it's rather your continuation day. And if we must have a birth certificate, we should put our date of conception on it. Then he goes on, But the question remains, even before that date, did you exist or not? If you say yes, I think you're correct. Before your conception, you were already there, maybe half in your father, half in your mother. Because from nothing, we can never become something. Can you name one thing that was once a nothing? A cloud? Do you think that a cloud can be born out of nothing? Before becoming a cloud, it was water, maybe flowing as a river. It's not nothing. Do you agree? We cannot conceive of the birth of anything. There is only continuation. Please look back even further and you will see that you exist not only in your mother and father, but in your grandparents and your great-grandparents. As I look more deeply, I can see that in a former life I was a cloud. This is not poetry, it's science, because I'm still a cloud. Without the cloud, I cannot be here. I am the cloud, the river and the air at this very moment. So I know in the past that I have been a cloud, a river and the air. I was a rock. I was the minerals in the water. This is not a question of belief in reincarnation. This is the history of life on earth. We've been gas, sunshine, water, fungi and plants. We've been single-celled beings. The Buddha said that in one of his previous lives he was a tree. He was a fish. He was a deer. These are not superstitious things. Every one of us has been a cloud, a deer, a bird, a fish, and we continue to be those things, not just in former lives. While I was on retreat, I got a vivid idea of what the Master is saying here. One of the tracks that led from the hut I was staying in led to the edge of a steep decline, almost a cliff that overlooked a valley to the mountains on the other side. All was covered in forest, and the view was just breathtaking. Sitting on the little plank of wood that some kind soul had left as a seat at the end of the track, I one day realized with clarity how none of what I was seeing, the sky, the clouds, the forest, the mountains, the distant waterfalls, could exist unless everything else existed as well. Everything was alive and in motion. Even the mountains were flowing. A tree was not a tree, but the earth, sun, water and air flowing together, not up, not down, but just flowing into the fantastic shapes, forms and colours that we call trunk, branches, twigs and leaves. 
Everything in motion was becoming everything else. And I was part of this continuous transformation. My breath mingled with the breath of the trees on the wind and the breath that came from all the other beings. As I breathed in, I was breathing in the air that contained the atoms of countless other beings and existences. I breathed out my atoms and the colours of my mind into the movement to join and influence, even in a slight way, everything else. Far below me, a large bird, a falcon or something like that, drifted at ease on the wind, and I wondered, if the air didn't flow, how could the bird fly? If the bird didn't fly, how could the air flow? Even the outstretched wings changed the direction of the wind that was holding them up. Then, looking further into the swirls of land, I pondered, where does the valley end and the mountain begin? And is the valley the footstep of the mountain, or is the mountain the hunched back of the valley? Can you really separate valley and mountain? Surely, if there is no valley, there will be no mountain. Now, I can't say that I had a transcendental experience or anything like that, and it was more a profound sense of interconnectedness than actual seeing, but it did affect the rest of the time I was there. A young friend joined me for part of the retreat, and every time we sat outside on the steps, eating our meals in near silence, I was again conscious of the continuous transformation that I was part of. The trees seemed to have a much more intimate connection with the tidal waves of wind that bowed their branches, and I could never escape the sense that they were more like rivers of motion and light than solid entities. My friend, who is intimate with trees, asked, Can you tell where a tree ends and the earth begins? And I had to admit that I could not. And later I wrote, Is a tree the flow of the earth into the sky, or the sky into the earth? The understanding coloured the way I ate. I was conscious of how what we label as food was just a momentary manifestation of the effort people all over the world had put into making it arrive on my plate in the middle of the forest of New Zealand's Coromandel Peninsula. But that effort was meaningless without the sun, the rain, the air, the wind, the workers' parents, partners, children, and so on. The deeper I looked, the further connections I found, and it brought a real sense that everything had contributed to the meal. And even as the food entered my body, it was continuing a journey with no beginning and no end. This kind of understanding brings so much gratitude, joy and reverence. Suddenly everything seemed in a way sacred, even going to the toilet. You truly realize that what falls into the long drop is just the elements continuing their endless magical dance that will for a while at least regenerate not only the great forest and its creatures surrounding you, but also the sea in the distance, the air about you, and the friend that eats quietly and smiles beside you. Nothing is left out. You also tend to see the suffering that comes with everything, even a simple cup of tea, the toil in the hot sun of the planters and harvesters, their worries and their fears, the insects that lose their lives in the processing of the tea leaves, and, if you take milk, of course the anguish of the cows and the calves from which they are too early separated. As the second of the four Buddhist seals states, all contaminated phenomena are in the nature of suffering. All this made a profound difference to the way I'd eaten in the past, 
craving for what I liked, stuffing it into my mouth with greed, chewing and swallowing with little comprehension of what an extraordinary thing was really taking place. And yet, of course, it is not really extraordinary. It is the nature of existence, and it's happening all the time. But we choose in some subliminal way not to notice. As we gobble with greed and such little comprehension, I wonder how much damage we're doing to ourselves and to our environment. Here again is Thich Nhat Hanh with an interaction he had with a leaf, a story I quoted in another pro- radio program some quite long time ago, but which is so telling and so beautiful that I'm going to bring it up again. He writes in The Heart of Understanding, One autumn day I was in a park, absorbed in the contemplation of a very small but beautiful leaf in the shape of a heart. Its color was almost red, and it was barely hanging on to the branch, nearly ready to fall down. I spent a long time with it and asked the leaf a lot of questions. I found out the leaf had been a mother to the tree. Usually we think that the tree is the mother and the leaves are just children. But as I looked at the leaf, I saw that the leaf is also a mother to the tree. The sap that the roots take up is only water and minerals, not good enough to nourish the tree. So the tree distributes the sap to the leaves. The leaves take the responsibility of transforming the rough sap into refined sap and, with the help of the sun and gas, sending it back in order to nourish the tree. Therefore, the leaves are also the mother of the tree. And since the leaf is linked to the tree by a stem, the communication is easy to see. I asked the leaf if it was scared because it was autumn and the other leaves were falling. The leaf told me, no. During the whole spring and summer, I was very alive. I worked hard and helped nourish the tree, and much of me is in the tree. Please do not say that I am just this form, because this leaf form is only a tiny part of me. I am the whole tree. I know that I am already inside the tree, and when I go back to the soil, I will continue to nourish the tree. That's why I do not worry. As I leave this branch and float to the ground, I will wave to the tree and tell her I will see you again very soon. Suddenly I saw a kind of wisdom, very much like the wisdom contained in the Heart Sutra. You have to see life. You shouldn't say life of the leaf, but life in the leaf and life in the tree. My life is just life, he says with a capital L, and you can see it in me and in the tree. That day there was a wind blowing, and after a while I saw the leaf leave the branch and float down to the soil dancing joyfully, because as it floated, it saw itself already there in the tree. It was so happy. I bowed my head, and I knew that we have a lot to learn from the leaf, because it was not afraid. It knew that nothing can be born and nothing can die. The cloud in the sky will also not be scared. When the time comes, the cloud will become rain. It's fun becoming rain, falling down, changing and becoming part of the Mississippi River or the Amazon River or the Mekong River or falling onto vegetables and later becoming part of a human being. It's a very exciting adventure. The cloud knows that if it falls to the earth, it might become part of the ocean. So the cloud isn't afraid. Only humans are afraid. Now, for those of you with a more scholarly bent of mind than Thich Nhat Hanh's relatively poetical vision, 
Let's now go to an explanation by His Holiness, the Dalai Lama. In his book, The Universe in a Single Atom, he writes that the fundamental dependent nature of reality, what Lama Tsongkhapa calls dependent arising, lies at the heart of Buddhist understanding of the world and our human nature. He writes, In brief, the principle of dependent origination can be understood in the following three ways. First, all conditioned things and events in the world come into being only as a result of the interaction of causes and conditions. They don't just arise from nowhere, fully formed. Second, there's a mutual dependence between parts and the whole. Without parts, there can be no whole. Without a whole, it makes no sense to speak of parts. This interdependence of parts and the whole applies to both spatial and temporal terms. Third, anything that exists and has an identity does so only within the total network of everything that has a possible or potential relation to it. No phenomenon exists with an independent or intrinsic identity. He goes on, The world is made up of a network of complex interrelations. We cannot speak of the reality of a discrete entity outside the context of its range of interrelations with its environment and other phenomena, including language, concepts and other conventions. Thus, there are no subjects without the objects by which they are defined. There are no objects without subjects to apprehend them. There are no doers without things done. There is no chair without legs, a seat, a back, wood and nails, the floor on which it rests, the walls that define the room it's in, the people who constructed it, the individuals who agree to call it a chair and recognize it as something to sit on. Not only is the existence of things and events utterly contingent, but according to this principle, their very identities are thoroughly dependent upon others. Now, In the text we are studying, Lama Tsongkhapa writes, One who sees the infallible cause and effect of all phenomena in cyclic existence and beyond, and destroys all false perceptions of their inherent existence, has entered the path which pleases the Buddha. Now, Geshe Sonam Rinchen, you may remember, explained this from a purely Buddhist point of view in our last program. However, in explaining how emptiness and the law of causation are complementary, His Holiness makes an interesting comparison between the seemingly schizophrenic ways that both quantum physicists and Buddhists view and work in the world. Buddhists say all things lack independent inherent existence and yet hold the law of cause and effect to be infallible. Meanwhile, quantum physicists work in the lab as though particles are solid entities that move here and there, but philosophically admit that nothing really exists, and I quote, without the apparatus that defines it. According to the great Buddhist philosopher Nagarjuna, a favorite of the Tibetan schools, everything is empty of inherent independent existence, yet we experience things as if they had distinct identities and causes. So we have in Buddhism what is described as the two truths, the conventional truth, where we normally act and live, and the ultimate truth, which dictates that nothing has any intrinsic existence whatsoever. And this is similar to the quantum physicist, acting as though particles have their own reality, but admitting that ultimately they don't. In the world of the conventional truth, we find the law of cause and effect, which operates as an infallible principle. 
His Holiness also mentions that the laws of logic work perfectly here as well. This world of empirical experience is not an illusion, nor is it unreal, he writes. It is real in that we experience it. A grain of barley does produce a barley sprout, which can eventually yield a barley crop. Taking a poison can cause one's death, and similarly, taking a medication can cure an illness. However, from the perspective of the ultimate truth, things and events do not possess discrete independent realities. Their ultimate ontological status is empty in that nothing possesses any kind of essence or intrinsic being. He goes on, I can envision something similar to this principle of the two truths applying in physics. For instance, we can say the Newtonian model is an excellent one for the common sense world we, as we know it, while Einsteinian relativity, based on radically different presuppositions, represents an addition, in addition an excellent model for a different or more inclusive domain. The Einsteinian model describes aspects of reality for which the states of relative motion are crucial, but does not really affect our common sense picture under most circumstances. Likewise, the quantum physics model of reality represents the workings of a different domain, the mostly inferred reality of particles, especially in the arena of the microscopic. Each of these pictures is excellent in its own right and for the purposes for which it was designed, but if we believe any of these models to be constituted by intrinsically real things, we are bound to be disappointed. Then returning to the Buddhist model of two truths, His Holiness invokes the 7th century follower of Nagarjuna, the philosopher Chandrakirti. He writes, Chandrakirti argues that when formulating one's understanding of reality, one must be sensitive to the scope and parameters of the specific mode of inquiry. For, for example, he argues that to reject distinct identity causation or, and origination within the everyday world, as some interpreters of the philosophy of emptiness have suggested, simply because these notions are untenable from the perspective of ultimate reality, constitutes a methodological error. On a conventional level, we see cause and effect all the time. When we're trying to find who's at fault in an accident, we're not delving into the deeper nature of reality, where an infinite chain of events would make it impossible to place blame. What His Holiness is saying is that if you and I crash our cars into one another, we could trace all the events, all the causes and conditions that led to our head-on back to the Big Bang. Now that might give us a good understanding of how it all came about, and we may see that neither of us was really to blame. Through the causes and conditions, it was inevitable. But when the insurance companies and the police take us to court to find out who has to pay, the judge is not going to be impressed by an intricate and detailed history that stretches back to the beginning of time. Thus His Holiness says that when we find cause and effect operating in our ordinary empirical world, we are not seeing it through the mind trying to determine how things ultimately exist. We operate within the limits of our everyday conventions, language and logic, and that's good enough for most of our day-to-day -day dealings. However, if we are arguing whether an omnipotent permanent God exists or not, we can use an analysis of ultimate reality that shows emptiness to prove, at least to our own satisfaction, 
that he doesn't. And there I'll have to leave you as we have run out of time. Thanks for joining the program today. And as you go, please dedicate any positive potential we have created to gaining enlightenment to benefit all sentient beings. Thank you once again, and I hope you'll be with us again next week. Goodbye. Thanks for listening to this Free FM podcast. If you want to hear more content like this, you can support Free FM via Patreon. Head to patreon.com/freefm89 to find out more.